0: Hi everyone, Luke here. Uh, There's something I'd like to briefly talk about before we get on with today's episode of the Michael and Us podcast. The reason I'm recording this separately and putting it right at the top of the show is that uh, I just didn't feel comfortable given the circumstances to have what I'm about to talk about sitting alongside the usual goofy stuff we do notwithstanding the parasocial element that comes with the territory. uh, I also try not to get excessively personal here, but again, given the circumstances, I just didn't feel like I could let this pass, particularly since I was on a different continent and on a brief hiatus from recording the show uh, when the news I'm going to talk about actually broke. As many of you will have heard, my friend Ed Broadbent died two weeks ago at the age of 87. Born in 1936 in Oshawa, uh, an important birthplace of industrial unionism in Canada, among other things, Uh, Ed was one of the most outstanding socialist politicians of his generation, uh, leading the New Democratic Party of Canada with courage and wisdom from 1975 to 1989, and coming closer than any other leader of Canada's parliamentary left ever had to becoming prime minister. On the global stage, he was vice chair of the once important Socialist International and championed many important solidarity campaigns with people in the global south. Um, Now, I'm going to be writing about Ed, and I'll be in Ottawa this weekend, where I'll have the honor of speaking at his state funeral uh, this coming Sunday. If I talk too much more now, I'll end up filling out an entire episode, and I know that isn't what you're all tuning in for. Uh, But in closing, uh, I do just want to say that My friendship with Ed is something I'm going to cherish for the rest of my life. I met him over a decade ago, but the unique kind of dialogue we've enjoyed over the past several years uh, in working on his memoir was a kind of privilege that a younger me uh, really could never have dreamed of. He was a person possessed of a singular intellectual and moral sincerity. Uh, A guy I could discuss basically anything with, and uh, the experience of being able to talk to him for hours on end about politics and philosophy was special to me in a way I actually find difficult to put into words. And since words seem to be failing me, uh, I think I'd like to leave the final word to my friend Ed. Uh, This is a short passage from something he wrote in June 1986 in defense of the Sandinista government in Nicaragua that I think captures beautifully the spirit of his internationalism and the kind of leader that he was. So I'll have more to say about Ed in other places, uh, but for now the last word goes to him. The world of a politician is a world of light and shadow. Never merely pragmatic, it is always moral. For us in the international social democratic movement, there has always been the difficulty of reconciling certain universal principles with their application in a variety of countries with wildly divergent histories. It is a problem, it is difficult, but it must be done. We apply the principles of equality, liberty, and economic justice constantly within our own nations, of course. This is a difficulty we take for granted. But just as we make critical judgments at home, so too must we when we look at other countries. Cultural and historical differences must be taken into account, but they never absolve us of the obligation to judge, decide, and act. When we talk about democracy, pluralism, religious freedom, tolerance, human rights, or self-determination, we are not giving voice to mere abstractions relevant only to a few nations. We are talking about human values and ideals that we believe desirable for all people at all times in all parts of our world.
1: A situation similar with politics writing. When I think of all the publications and websites that specialize in culture writing or culture journalism or, or cultural criticism that I knew 10 or 15 years ago, they're all either worse than they were then or they're defunct.
0: Yeah, I mean, you were saying, you know, I was asking you before we started recording, like, the AV Club, what happened to that? Because I never see their stuff anymore. And you were saying, like, they now do, like, AI-generated uh, stuff. Dog shit. I mean, it really is crazy, like, how the labor model that big tech has tried to introduce and to some extent has, like, successfully introduced into the labor market, uh, you know, through apps with things like Uber and with uh, Prop, whatever it was in California, where, yeah, ostensibly, this is, you know, innovative of new technology that gives workers flexibility and stuff. And actually what it is, is, I mean, it's not even rideshare apps. It, the go- ultimate goal is to go beyond rideshare apps and just create a permanent class of like precarious workers who have absolutely no rights, who can just be on call at any given time to perform labor of any kind at the lowest possible cost to the person paying. And that's where it seems like media and, you know, what now calls itself content creation is going where it's like, Oh yeah, we're literally going to have a fucking computer generated this. And the only job that's going to be available is to be like the person who gives the AI the instructions or whatever. I'm trying to remember where I read this, but I think this came out of the Hollywood writers strike, right? There was the move by the studios to try to instantiate a new order where you wouldn't have writers rooms anymore. You just have one writer on a TV show and their job is to basically like take an entire season of a show that has been written from pilot to finale uh, by a computer. And then to be like the person who sort of of imposes a little bit of order on it, maybe gives it like a human touch here and there, that kind of thing. And it's like, this is just the death of journalism and writing and human communications we're talking about. I mean, I'm sure we've both looked at Substack
1: and thought, well, is this... I haven't ruled it out. Yeah, like, is this this the future for people like us who want to write? Because, I mean, I just saw that uh, Cinemascope magazine, the great Canadian film journal, where, of course, I've been a contributor, is going on indefinite hiatus uh it's going to a a farm in the country where it can play with all
0: the other dogs yeah it'll be it'll be happy there'll be like rabbits it can chase and stuff
1: And I think like, well, geez, that's one of the three good print magazines about film. And that sucks. Yeah. And, you know, what do you do? And I mean, what's great about Substack or something like our podcast is you're obviously unconstrained. You can do whatever you want. You can follow whatever odd tangents you want. You could uh, develop an identity in a way that is potentially sharper and more unique than you would conforming to traditional media outlets. The bad thing about it is you can also become very lazy and bad and uh, self-indulgent. Which of
0: course we would never do. We've never been lazy and
1: self-indulgent, but but it has happened.
0: I think you know it's it's kind of worse than you suggest because obviously you mean to say well you know yes we have been self-indulgent. You're hoping to neutralize that by saying it out loud. But what actually worries me is that I think a large section of our audience really likes it when we're self-indulgent, and this is kind of what worries me about uh, Substack. This is both the strength of the kind of Substack blogging model and its potential limitation. Like when I think of the Substack stacks that I read most regularly. You know, I like the writers, so I really like the stuff they post. But at the same time, I can think of numerous examples where one of them has published something where I've thought, you know, I enjoy this, but this would be better if you had to write it for a publication because you wouldn't be so unconstrained that you can just use for example these shorthand arguments that I understand or, you know, your audience understands because they've been reading you for years. Like you would have to think through your own ideas and defend them a little better and kind of uh, elucidate them a little better if you weren't doing this on Substack so I don't know. The idea does make me a little anxious, but uh, yeah, like you, I will probably start one at some point. If anyone from Substack is listening and they want to give Will and I one of those like $50,000 advances, we'll go to Substack right now. Yeah, please. In, in fact, you know, we'll even, we'll, we'll sweeten the pot. For $50,000, you're going to have both of us. We'll make it a package deal. It'll be the Michael and Us Substack. For that much money, I will conceive and have a
1: firstborn child and then sell it.
0: And its legal name will be Substack.
1: Uh, well, welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan. Here is always with
0: Luke Savage welcome back everyone
1: and uh, before we get to the meat of the show I do just want to say I saw the new Woody Allen movie oh I'm, my gosh I'm a start
0: speaking of self indulgence
1: yeah. I'm startling Luke on mic with this because I don't know I thought he might be curious I thought he might like to know
0: for the sake of content I will say yes I'm curious. oh liar I'm curious. liar yeah you're curious
1: <laughs> thank you yeah his new French one coup de chance is called there was a file that's been going around and a file also of AI generated subtitles which Get a little bit out of sync at times but you know if you're determined like i am if you're a soldier of cinema you will follow it closely it got good reviews at the venice film festival and i just want to say that is a testament to how low the bar is for him these days because if anyone else had made this movie you'd say not very good Uh, full of scenes of people meeting each other and then spouting exposition to each other (laughs) full of scenes of people saying the same three character points to each other over and over
0: what's the name of the movie again
1: coup de What does that mean it's Uh, stroke of luck and it's match point again it's it's basically the same story as matchpoint. i was
0: gonna say i mean uh, let me try to like predict what the plot is just based on the information you've given me There's a character who's perhaps having some sort of midlife crisis, perhaps they're abroad, perhaps they're not native to France, and they're in a bit of an unfamiliar setting, which is making them question some of, you know, the axioms around which they've lived their life, perhaps they make a new acquaintance, possibly one of romantic interest... And they, and they are ultimately forced to choose between taking a, a risk and choosing a new life, or perhaps doing something blatantly uh, hideous and immoral, and living the consequences of that, whether they're good or bad, or accepting, you know, a 6 out of 10 life, characterized by uh, stability, and uncomplicated but unadventurous happiness.
1: Well, I'll say you're like maybe 30 or 40% right. <laughs> His movies these days feel sort of AI generated out of all the elements from the previous ones. So first of all, nobody's broad they're all French because he can't get any English speaking actors in the movies <laughs> yeah, right? anymore I should have
0: factored that in
1: but a young woman who's like the trophy wife of a, you know very very rich guy she runs into an old high school classmate who's always had a crush on her uh, he says he's always had a crush on her that's the only thing he ever says
0: to her so we've sort of got elements of uh, another woman in blue jasmine on the table now you're describing a sort of like boulderized version of those films
1: and uh, you know they have an affair but then her rich husband so everybody
0: everybody film um, yeah it's odd that he's
1: so fixated <laughs> on that isn't he her rich husband catches wind of the affair and you know like what do you think he's gonna do what do you, do you think he's gonna like maybe plot a murder i don't know i don't want to spoil anything don't want to spoil anything but we do find out that life is guided more by chance than anything else we are ruled by the whims of fate. We are ruled by luck. We basically have no control over our destinies. The heart wants what it wants.
0: So crimes and misdemeanors and match point thrown into the mix.
1: You know, am I married to my stepdaughter now? Well, who's to say? The whims of fate will will lead us anyway. And I actually, the last thing I'll say on this movie is I do think something vital changed between crimes and misdemeanors in this one. You'll recall in crimes and misdemeanors, the Martin Landau character basically decided, okay, I've done this. Now I'm going to live with it and I'm gonna be comfortable with it. He's made uh, decisions and it's, it's a horrifying ending, uh, but he took control of his destiny. And in the one sense then, it's all about luck. It's all about chance. It's all about we really don't have control over these things. Yeah, right, because of
0: course, Match Point, right, uses the tennis metaphor where Jonathan Reese Myers yeah. does something hideous, and he actually isn't quite okay with it in the same way. I and mean, he's okay with it enough to do it. But then it's all a question of like, where does, what, what side of the net does the ball fall on? Yeah, he could be
1: caught. He could be not caught. And, you know, 50-50. I keep watching these movies thinking, do we see any evidence of growth in this artist or any evidence of evolution? I think
0: I might know the answer. And
1: and, and we do and i'm i'm ambivalent about it oh? at, at best i'm not crazy about the way things have evolved and i'm trying to think what might have happened in his life to lead to this evolution i'm just uh I'm coming up short so
0: how would you characterize this evolution
1: well he certainly doesn't believe in fate and personal responsibility anymore he believes in uh chance and um amorality anyway that's all i have to say about that movie before moving on to the next topic, I have a quick movie recommendation. We've talked before about uh, how we want to know more about Palestinian cinema. And I actually just watched an interesting kind of docu art film from the year 2022 called Foragers. It was made by a Palestinian filmmaker named Juana Mana. And it's dealing with, so in Israel, it is illegal to forage these two herbs, za'atar and akub, that are synonymous with Arab cuisine. And, of course, the laws were passed, allegedly, to protect the plants from extinction, but the laws happened to pass at a time when certain Israeli companies were making a strong effort to corner and monopolize the market on their harvesting and sale. And of course, it's not technically illegal to be an Arab and create your own company to harvest these plants. But good luck getting land insurance if you have a, yeah, a bad inv- year. Finding investors. Yeah, yeah etc. Yeah. Et and also, as for the picking of it, you know, there is, of course, such a thing as selective enforcement of the law. So it's this very beautiful art film, just a little over an hour long, that is partly interviews with Palestinian people who have been charged with the crime of picking these plants partly actual footage of palestinians picking the plants uh, which are all you know artfully composed and part sort of a meditation on that's a hack critical phrase meditation on but i'm going to use it anyway uh, meditation on the survival of tradition and ritual in the face of oppression and the way the law can be a tool of colonialism i think you can see it for the next day or two on lecinemaclub.com and after that uh, after it's gone still worth seeking out wherever it can be found.
0: Well, I have a dumber and far less important thing to talk about, and you can call it an anti-recommendation, but because I knew I was going to be spending a lot of time on an airplane and, you know, like would would have the odd half an hour to kill in a hotel room or something like that, you know, my thoughts immediately drifted to, well, what's some TV I can download that I'm sort of like perversely curious about, but would never watch under normal circumstances. And for some reason, what came to mind for me was why don't I try to excavate this vast you? Universe of these Star Wars TV series that now exist. Uh, I've seen Andor, and you know, folks, uh, if you've listened to the show for a while, you've heard me talk about this. Andor is obviously good. We're not going to do an episode. It's on
1: socialist, it. I hear. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, yeah, we're not going to do an episode on it. Insofar as it has politics, I would say they're good, uh, but mostly it's just good TV. I think it's very entertaining, but it is very much the exception, I think. Uh, and actually, having watched all of the Obi Wan miniseries and a couple episodes of the book. Of Boba Fett, I think I now understand a little bit more. I have, I am, I'm moving towards a theory of how uh, Star Wars can be good and why most of it is now bad. The lion's share of the like post original trilogy output is bad, and I think I can finally offer a coherent explanation as to why. So. Why is Andor good? Well, I actually got the first season, you know, the the only 12 episodes that are out for my mom uh, for Christmas because she likes TV and I thought she would like Andor and uh, she did. And she and my brother like binge watched it in a couple days after Christmas. And my brother made a a good observation I thought about Andor. He said that, you know, it's about time that they tried to tell the stories of just ordinary people in this universe instead of like reinventing the lore of the Jedi and the Sith for the 15th time. And that is, I think, what makes Andor good. It's just kind of a peripheral story that's happening sort of as the Empire is consolidating its power, and there's just no Jedi stuff. There's no bullshit, you know, mysticism or anything like that. It's ordinary people, sometimes morally compromised people, trying to figure out what the right thing to do as the galaxy is sliding into uh, authoritarianism. It's, uh, you know, it's entertaining. Some really good performances. I really like the Stellan Sarsgaard character, and I'm forgetting the name of the Irish actor who plays the young rebel that writes the manifesto. But yeah, full of lots of good stuff.
1: I mean, you want I know about the normal people in the Star Wars universe what about the death star contractors
0: uh this is all to say i watched the obi-wan series which literally you know i thought like okay it's obi-wan kenobi and it has ewan mcgregor who's who's wonderful so how bad can it possibly be it turns out pretty fucking bad right away i knew the series was gonna suck because it literally begins with a like last time on star wars and then it's like a clip show from like attack of the clones and revenge of the sith watch every episode of the show on the on an airplane i could like barely tell you what the plot is as with uh, the worst kind of like fan culture it manages to uh, reinvent the lore of the thing that it's supposed to be telling you more about so it like alters the very thing it's supposed to be illuminating uh we're meant to believe that obi-wan kenobi uh, having been exiled to tatooine like had a whole adventure where he went to save a young princess leia who got kidnapped by i don't know forces linked to palpatine or something Awful. I got two episodes into the Book of Boba Fett show and I was like, man, even like jet lagged with a gin and tonic in my hand, as physically uncomfortable as ever been in my life on an airplane, I fucking can't handle another episode of this. The premise of that one is like, hey, you know when Boba Fett goes into the pit of Sarlacc in Return of the Jedi? We're going to tell you what happens uh, when he escapes from the pit and actually replaces Jabba the Hutt as the main crime lord of Tatooine. Awful. Dog shit. Horrible. I'm not saying there needs to be or should be more Star Wars content. I think there's been quite enough. But I will say that the only pieces of Star Wars that I have enjoyed since the original trilogy that I have genuinely enjoyed or found entertaining at all in a non-ironic way are Andor and you know the handful of episodes of The Mandalorian that I've seen. What do those have in common? The fact that they are not trying to like expand the lore of Star Wars. That they're just that they just take the things that are fun about the Star Wars universe and do something creative. With them, in the case of Andor, that's in service of a kind of you know epic storytelling with lots of characters. In the service of the Mandalorian, it's in the service of a space western with a little baby Yoda figure who's kind of corny. Who Will actually got banned from Twitter for threatening to kill one time.
1: Yeah, Star Wars. Uh, my eyes glazed right over during all that.
0: <laughs> yeah, Will actually got up and walked out of the room while I was talking, but I was so immersed in my flow of soul I didn't even notice. But it's a little rich coming from Will since on his other podcast he just like did a whole episode like you and Justin did a whole episode on the original trilogy. Will is always above talking about Star Wars until he's not. Guilty as charged. <laughs> what can I
1: what can I tell you? I contain multitudes. <laughs> We're going to mix up the order of the episode a little bit. We're going to end with some politics stuff because uh, we had a a very tragic passing. Ron DeSantis uh, left this earth this week. Rest in power. Uh, So we want to memorialize him properly. But this is a superdelegate episode. The superdelegates this month chose Barbie of course they did it's hillary clinton's favorite movie uh hashtag hillary barbie they voted on barbie several weeks ago for the obvious reason that it's you know the biggest movie of the year it's a cultural touchstone even a cultural lightning rod one might say i know ben shapiro was very upset about it <laughs>
0: yeah yeah uh, but justin trudeau loved it yeah uh, hashtag team barbie i'm barbie barbie is the number one movie in the world is Barbieland alternate reality what if there's beach what in the kens stay? i don't know no, I won't let you do one appendectomy. But I'm a man. But not a doctor. Can I talk to a doctor? You are talking to a doctor. RV with pg 13.
1: And this week, God, I don't even want to dignify this scandal. But... No,
0: no, no. This is perfect that we're discussing the movie this week because Barbie is back in the discourse. Oh There's my some God! Oscar discourse with a vengeance. It. Can, can I just say, I, I kind of want to set the table a bit for this one. I was not particularly thrilled that uh, our super delegate here voted for this one. The reason being that I feel like I am particularly ill disposed to talk about it. Uh, look, this movie is clever. It has many good performances. Ryan Gosling very funny. Margot Robbie fantastic. It is basically as good as entertaining as a movie like this can be, like a sort of corporate IP movie. Uh, I'll
1: add the production design is terrific, great, and the, very uh, the the creation of the world of the Barbies and the cans is uh, fantastic. The,
0: the, the beginning with the sort of 2001: A Space Odyssey thing, very good. Yeah. um But uh, as a cultural object, as a feature of the discourse or whatever you'd call it, this movie represents just the kind of thing that I don't really participate in. I don't want to participate in. Uh, feels kind of like reverse engineered uh, the whole Barbenheimer thing felt so exhausted to me it's like we're doing 2014 style Twitter discourse but with even less conviction like I feel like there was a time when this type of cultural discourse actually wasn't entirely reverse engineered it wasn't something that studios were consciously goading or even creating people might have actually been participating in it because they felt like there were real stakes I don't agree well, that well, there are real stakes in this I, kind of uh, thing.
1: can I interject and say that I, I disagree slightly. I mean, to what extent this was an astroturf phenomenon and to what extent it was grassroots, maybe a bit of a chicken and an egg thing because on the weekend that it came out and the week leading up to it, I saw a lot of genuine enthusiasm for this movie, for Oppenheimer, as well as for just the act of going to the movies. And I found something kind of nice about that. You know, you see the groups of people all in their pink going to see Barbie that, and having fun. That's
0: fine. That's not what I'm talking about though. That This is a very popular movie and for good reason. It's entertaining Entertaining and you know Oppenheimer good movie entertaining in a different way I'm not talking about just like the act of people going to the cinema or people buying tickets I'm talking about the meta discourse around the movie the construction of going to see the movie as some kind of like political act I'm talking about the whole like meme thing where you're supposed to be like Posting a picture of yourself with the regalia of one film or another and then that's like you're choosing a side All that stuff is so artificial like Justin Trudeau with that photo with his son we went to the movie and they're wearing pink or he's wearing pink. I can't remember if they're both wearing pink. Justin Trudeau is a conscious actor in this type of annoying discourse. In fact, he's one of like the undisputed virtuosos of this type of discourse. This extremely thin and vapid sort of cultural discourse that, you know, serves as a proxy for politics. And he's like partly built his political brand around that kind of thing. He knows that by posting this photo, the most insufferable right-wing people on the planet are going to be mad about it. And wouldn't you know it, the most insufferable right-wing people on the planet got mad about it. And I didn't feel that there was any more authenticity to them getting mad about it than him doing it in the first place. And I'm sure there were plenty of examples where it was like the same formula in reverse. Like a conservative triggered the libs and then the triggered libs like reacted, got mad about it, whatever. I do think that there used to be like a version of this where people were actually more invested in it. And, you know, again, I have my problems with that, but now it feels much more astroturfed. And, you know, we're discussing this movie this week where there's now like a a bit of Oscars discourse around that. And, you know, this applies beyond Barbie, but like what gets nominated for Oscars? Who gets nominated for Oscars? We're supposed to place great political weight in the Oscars as if they're these like cultural sweepstakes, as if the Academy is this like, you know, it's the Grand Inquisitor It's this cultural jury that's like deciding what is or isn't important and is like the arbiter of like where we're at as a culture and how like progressive or inclusionary we are. But so look, uh, for all those reasons, this is a movie which to me is hard to sort of extrapolate from like things that I find annoying that actually have nothing to do with like the movie as an object. And so I just wanted to like get that out of the way before we talk about the movie, because as I said, I mean, this is an IP movie. It's like, you know, Ted or Space Jam, like, you know, Mattel is involved in this. And actually, apparently, uh, they're threatening, uh, if that's the right word, to do a bunch of movies around like Hot Wheels, Rock'em Sock'em Robots, uh, Chatty Cathy, whatever that is, and various other Mattel products. I I have a feeling those are not going to be the kind of globe-spanning cultural phenomena that Barbie has been. But even though this is an IP movie and it's kind of like a metaverse movie, I would put it more in the category of something like the Lego movie than Space Jam A New Legacy, right? The Lego movie has pretty similar politics in a way to this one, but it is a lot of fun and it's got a sense of humor. There is a a certain genuine self-awareness to it. And I think this movie uh, has those qualities as well.
1: Well, uh, Diablo Cody, the original writer of the film, before Mattel in the studio went in a different direction direction has said in interviews that she kept hearing at the pitch meetings uh we want something like the lego movie right. or we want the lego movie and the finished film mirrors the lego movie pretty uncannily the sort of division of the toy world and the real world and will ferrell playing basically the same character in both movies I,
0: man i'd actually forgotten about that but also i mean the the conclusion which we'll, we'll talk about in greater detail but i mean the conclusion where margot Robbie's stereotypical barbie at the end of the movie you know is sort of given a talking to by you know the fairy godmother, who's you know the spirit of Ruth Handler, who was the co-creator of Mattel and the uh, or co-founder of Mattel and the creator of the Barbie doll, and she basically says, "Look, Barbie, like nothing's written in stone. Uh, you know, you're having an identity crisis, but you know, none of us have a prescribed identity, and you know, your your life is uh, is what you make of it." Which is kind of the end of the Lego movie as well, right? It's like at the end of the Lego movie, there's no world outside of like the the Lego brand, but the Lego brand also ostensibly gives you like it's infinitely malleable to. Like whatever you want to create out of it, you know? So this is both what's kind of creative about this film and about the Lego movie, and it's also where they hit a kind of wall because ultimately they're bits of corporate IP. So their ultimate frontier has to be the brand itself. Uh, It's also, another movie comes to mind here that we've discussed on the podcast, this same idea is manifest in the critical difference between the three original Matrix movies and the Matrix uh, Revelations, right? The fourth Matrix movie, where the end of that one is like, well actually there's no world outside the matrix like lana wachowski feels cursed that she is like helped create this thing and is now like in a sense a prisoner to the fandom around it but also at the end of the movie she finds emancipation for the characters not in escaping the matrix but in making of the matrix uh, what they want so that is in some ways a version of the same thing and in, in the context of recent metaverse movies there's no need to
1: escape the cave when you can make the shadows on the wall do lots of really interesting things <laughs> Look, I'll give you a very, very brief plot synopsis, okay? Because you've all seen this movie. It's Barbie. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, you've seen it. Listen, there's there's real world and there's Barbie world. Barbie world's a fantasy world run by Mattel, uh, but but secretly run by Mattel, okay? And
0: all, and it's a matriarchy. And
1: and all the Barbies live there, and they are basically uh, platonic forms. Um, there are, there are lots of different kinds of Barbies. There's Doctor Barbie, Lawyer Barbie,
0: um, um, swimsuit Barbie, um, weird Barbie. Uh, Weird Barbie's Kate McKinnon, right? That That is that yeah. is correct. Supreme Court Justice Barbie, Construction Worker Barbie, President uh, Barbie, and obviously. All, all
1: of these platonic forms are linked to a consumer in the real world. And what the consumer does with that doll affects how, how the platonic form of the doll behaves. I actually think it, the mythology gets a little wonky here, but we're just going to go with it's it. It's
0: interesting. You describe it as platonic forms, and I know what you mean, but what I think is funny about the Barbie fantasy land is that it's like this matriarchal post scarcity utopia it's also kind of a society of orders like all the barbies have social roles that are based in the very hierarchical and decidedly non-matriarchal real world which i don't really know what to do with that but maybe it's just further to your point that the mythology though interesting is a little bit like difficult to parse
1: but anyway, whoever the corresponding owner of Stereotypical Barbie is, is having trouble because Stereotypical Barbie is getting thoughts and ideas in her head that she shouldn't be getting. She's thinking about mortality. Uh, she's having trouble walking. She is not functioning as Stereotypical Barbie should. And so she and Ken uh, go to the real world where, among other things, they find out that Stereotypical Barbie in the real world is owned by America Ferreira and her daughter. And America Ferreira works at Mattel and she thinks, uh, you know, Oh, these Barbie dolls, they're so perfect. This is a damaging archetype for women. How come Barbie doesn't have depression? How come Barbie doesn't have cellulite?
0: Yeah, Bar- Barbie arrives and finds herself immediately cancelled by Gen Z. And look, here's the part where I can say, oh, uh, this
1: is a, a corporation uh, showing its in on the joke and thereby neutralizing criticism and uh, uh, adapting to the times. But you are, you've heard that already. <laughs> it's kind of a stale point. You know it. It's Barbie. It's the biggest Movie most discussed movie
0: of the year you know what one of the jokes to the, in the movie that was kind of memorable for me was when they first arrive and they're getting gawked at like ken and barbie are getting gawked at and then ryan gosling as ken says something like oh all these people are like looking at me with no undercurrent of violence and then she replies like yeah they're all looking at me and there's a definite undercurrent of violence that's the kind of thing that I feel like I wouldn't normally like, that type of humor in a movie like this, but I don't know. It's an example of how this movie, you know, I think it is cleverer and in many ways like less cynical than other types of movies in this same subgenre. So I believe you had a little more plot to recount for us, Will. So
1: there's a, obviously been a crack up in the system. The, the boundaries between these worlds are not supposed to be transgressed, so they want to put stereotypical Barbie away, uh, do some renovating to the brand, but meanwhile, Ken, in the real world, is been exposed to the patriarchy and it rocks and he he loves it. he loves it so he he goes back to barbie world and turns it into ken world he liberates the kens he uh tells them about how boys rule
0: and girls drool and they all he wants to rewrite the constitution as well right it's like a constitutional coup he does january 6th in the barbie fantasy land and he he
1: does uh uh, boy things like he they lift weights and they talk about Zack snyder and things like that (laughs) and then at the end of the movie the barbie Barbies find a way to uh, reclaim their world and teach the Kens that actually they should be thinking about their mental health. And it's okay to be Ken and uh, you don't have to do the toxic masculinity. And also at the end of the movie, Barbie embraces being a real woman by going to the gynecologist. Uh, Now, there is much that can be said about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was I was kind of surprised by that. Like, the movie ends on that note. And, you know, it is a movie that's trying to be transgressive in many ways. And that is such a kind of, like, conservative flourish on which to end it.
1: And this is one of the moments in the movie where I think, if this were just a, a movie, if this were just, you know, one of 25 movies that came out this summer, it would be one thing. But because it has become, by some metrics, the movie of the year, touches like that take on a disproportionate weight. A movie like this becomes like this is where we are now and and so ending a movie like that the the gesture the the, the the gesture becomes more powerful
0: yeah and the end is like well ultimately uh, in the final estimation folks men are from mars women are from venus you know stereotypical barbie is gonna you know like remake herself if she sees fit but also uh men are from mars and women from venus You know, another movie that we've discussed on the pod that I think is worth entering in a discussion here and actually is in some ways more closely related to this movie than the other ones I brought up. That's the Buzz Lightyear movie. What was that called? Besides, Um, I called it, I keep calling it the Buzz Lightyear movie. I forgot. It's called a waste of money is what I'd call it. God damn it. Yeah. But uh, nonetheless, an important movie in kind of our ongoing discussion of metaverse movies and corporate IP movies on this podcast, because if you remember how the very convoluted like time travel based lore of that film works, the movie you're seeing only exists within the universe of the original Toy Story movie. It is a movie that Andy, the fictional kid from Toy Story, went to see in 1996 that got him really excited about Buzz Lightyear. And you know, this was another one of those movies where conservatives tried to make a like cause celebre about how woke it was because if you squint for like one second, there's two women like barely kissing in it. But the dark Buzz Lightyear, there's like you know a duplicate Buzz Lightyear. There's the like woke progressive Buzz Lightyear who wants to preserve the the new timeline where people get to be themselves. And then there's the dark Ron DeSantis Buzz Lightyear who like he represents Ron DeSantis's Florida and he delivers that flourish where it's like no Buzz, let's erase the timeline and go back before all these newfangled ideas. And because that movie is ultimately a piece of like propaganda for Disney, right? Disney bought Pixar, and what they're saying is, the movie that you're seeing, which came out in 2022, or whenever it was, actually came out in 1996, before we owned Pixar. But wouldn't you know it, we've actually always been woke. Please don't look up anything Walt Disney ever said. And Barbie, in its own way, is kind of doing a version of that, because for all of its cleverness, the climactic scene, that really the definitive scene of the movie where its kind of principal thesis statement is made is this one where uh, the spirit of Ruth Handler talks to uh, Margot Robbie and tells her, you know, the story has no ending, you know, uh, Barbie has made mistakes, Ken has made mistakes, Mattel has made mistakes, (laughs) but, you know, uh, society, like life, is a work in progress, and Mattel folks, uh, we're learning, we're changing, we're getting better, you know, we're doing the work. That is basically the thesis statement of the most important scene in the movie. And that is where it kind of hits its limit despite its, you know, cleverness and, uh, you know, the fact that it's pretty entertaining.
1: Well, when a movie becomes the biggest movie of the year, especially in this bleak cinematic landscape, this uh, movie-going landscape that has never fully recovered from the pandemic, and when it becomes, along with Oppenheimer, part of this, let's go back to the movies, Energy the same way that the year before Top Gun Maverick did. Uh, It basically repeated that phenomenon. Both these phenomena had that idea of let's give this obsolete art form uh, one last go. You know, when a movie becomes something like that, then it becomes just an interesting way to uh, put your finger up in the air and see where the culture's at. When Top Gun Maverick was the biggest movie of the year, you know, it was this very backwards looking movie in a lot of ways. You know, one of the key scenes in that movie is when. And Ed Harris says to him, uh, Maverick, uh, your kind's obsolete, you're a dying breed. And Tom Cruise says, well, maybe, maybe so, sir, but not today. And that was the big moment in the trailers. Uh, It's early on in the movie. It's a kind of thesis statement for the movie. And Tom Cruise has made himself synonymous with movie going, with movie theaters.
0: Big movie, big screen. Loved it. (laughs)
1: He has tied his aging body and fading star text to this apparatus and made them synonymous and said, uh, he doesn't mean to say this, but he's saying movies like me are in late middle age and are dying. But god damn it, we're still the best. And for now, we're the only thing you can get behind in this troubled world. You know, it may not be that way forever, but god god fucking damn it, this is it.
0: There you have it, folks. The old world is dying and the new world struggles to be born. Uh so in the this, meantime, this is the time of of Barbie, of Matrix 4 and of Top Gun Maverick.
1: <laughs> well, in the summer of 2022, I guess it was a very appealing message. And you know, Top Gun Maverick was also about America itself, you know, this declining imperial power that goddammit we're still number one for the time being so let's have one last hurrah and then this past summer tom cruise came back with another movie mission impossible uh something or other seven eight mission impossible ten, Tokyo et cetera
0: drift. yeah is what it was
1: called <laughs> mission impossible et cetera. and uh he came back on the campaign trail <laughs> like uh let's twist again like we did last summer you remember me from last summer remember me the king of movies well i'm back it's like folks we've amended the constitution i'm going for a third term and it came out the week before Barbieheimer, and was obviously crushed by them and uh you know poor tom cruise i mean having just come from being the king of movies and it's interesting that it was crushed by these two movies barbie and oppenheimer that in their way speak to the current moment much more than top gun maverick did that aren't backwards i mean obviously oppenheimer is a period piece but it's a revisionist historical film and you know there are obviously limits to what these movies are saying like they are mainstream liberal enter
0: But I I guess the point you're making or the point I'm kind of sensing from you is that they're not elegiac in the way that Top Gun Maverick is. Yeah, that's right. Like Top Gun Maverick is in a sense a lament for something that's if not passed already is in the process of passing, whereas in different ways, Barbie and Oppenheimer are sort of interventions in the current moment and are very of it
1: and you know barbie is interesting too because culture can sometimes uh uh, move like a like a great ship you might say the titanic but maybe i'll say the queen elizabeth you know you steer it and then you know in in 30 minutes it might move five degrees you remember ten years ago when Beyonce was at the Super Bowl doing the halftime show and she stood in front of like a bunch of letters that said feminist and right, th- there was right. a whole there was a whole discourse about that right. like ten years ago or fifteen years ago, a lot of famous celebrities would not identify publicly as feminist because that was a word that was tied up with like you know Andrea Dworkin types, you know like.
0: Well, yeah, I don't know if I would put it quite that strongly, but I know what you mean. You mean like it was a word that was considered too political for extremely famous people whose appeal has to remain sufficiently broad uh, to invoke. And at a certain point, it no longer had, you know, if you want, that kind of baggage. And so it actually became something that was advantageous to some extent to evoke. 10 or 15 years talking about the
1: patriarchy. Uh, identifying the patriarchy as a phenomenon was a little more cutting edge and now finally after years and years of discourse and years and years of think pieces and you know a certain presidential campaign that failed to another presidential campaign and you know the rehauling of various hr departments all over the world and finally you have this movie which if you were on the kinds of circles on twitter that we're on 10 years ago you're very familiar with the arguments that it's making but now culture has adapted such that it is the stuff of the biggest movie of the year and a lot of the people going to see it who probably would have chafed some of these ideas 10 or 15 years ago now love it and i guess i don't have much to say about that except just that it's it's interesting and it's indicative of the way that culture evolves and the timeline at which culture often evolves
0: you know i wish i'd introduced this earlier in the discussion but since this is ultimately an ip movie and you know it is it takes place within the the universe created by mattel i do think it'd be be worth entering into the discussion a little bit of history uh, of Mattel and of Ms. Ruth Handler who by all accounts seems to have been a very very intelligent capitalist so uh, Ruth Handler uh, and her husband they had teenagers by the way who were named Barbara and Ken They were kind of World War II era entrepreneurs. And I guess uh, just before the war in the 30s, they had a company that worked with uh, plastics. I think they made kind of uh, furniture products. Uh, But then during the war, uh, the plastics were very useful for various aircraft and submarines and things like that. So they were actually like, I guess by the standards of World War II industry, pretty small players, but like entrepreneurs who ended up contributing to the war effort and like turning their business into a facility of the war effort. Reading from. article on PBS now by the mid-1940s the young company would be taking in revenues of 2 million uh, 21.6 million in 2003 dollars borrowing money from the Bank of America Mattel presided over a plastic ukulele fad sold toy pianos and launched a music box that sold 20 million units by 1952 and now we get on to Barbie the handlers took their two teenagers Barbara and Ken on a trip to Europe in 1956 there they saw a doll that looked like an adult woman vastly different from the baby dolls most little girls owned Ruth was inspired. Three years later, Mattel's version, Barbie, would debut with a wardrobe of outfits that could be purchased separately. In 1960, the Handlers took Mattel public with a valuation of $10 $60.3 million in 2003 dollars. I don't know what that would be in like 2024 $20, dollars, but a lot, probably $100 million. It was on its way to the Fortune 500 and Barbie quickly became an icon with an ever-changing wardrobe and career options that mirrored women's changing aspirations. Now this is an interesting fact via PBS. Handler paid half a million dollars to be become the sole sponsor of the Mickey Mouse Club the value of the entire Mattel company the gamble paid off she was the first to successfully Market toys directly to children not their parents so that is the backstory of the person who in the movie the character who is sort of like the fairy godmother character and sort of the person who delivers what I think is very much the climactic speech of the film and I'm not exactly sure where this fits into this this discussion I mean except that you know Ruth Handler was obviously a very good businesswoman and a very smart capitalist. But it does seem like uh, the kind of main thing she achieved was a certain kind of, uh, if you want, enclosure within a particular consumer niche. You know, her her innovation seems to have been that uh, she was able to market the toys, as I just read, you know, directly to children rather than their parents. And so for some backstory on the history of Mattel, given that this movie is ultimately itself enclosed for all its innovations within the world of Mattel and with Mattel in a sense as its meta narrator, I think that's a useful piece of history to keep in mind. You guys, do you think the lady who invented Barbie looks like Barbie? I'm a five-foot-nothing grandma with a double mastectomy and tax evasion issues. Nobody looks like Barbie. Except, of course, Barbie. Take a bow, honey. Well, look, folks, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about some of the recent political news. We're recording this uh, the night after the New Hampshire primary. A thoroughly boring affair. I was doing some work last night, and... uh, Madeline had uh, the peace of mind to put on CNN uh, because she knew I wanted to watch the primary results. And I kind of vaguely noticed out of the corner of my eye. And and it turns out Nikki Haley has momentum. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But I so I had my headphones on and like I was like, all right, good stopping place. Now I'm going to go over. And by the time I went over, I feel like it was just barely after 7 p.m. And Nikki Haley was already on the stage speaking. It was like, oh, yeah, uh, 9% of results are in. Nikki Haley's already speaking. And it took me a minute to figure out what was going on. It was kind of like, why is Haley coming out at such an early stage why is she conceding and then I realized oh I know what's happening it's like all her good precincts or whatever have come in and before Donnie Casino builds the double digit lead that he's going to finish on she wants to come out and have the story be like she only lost by seven points or something but yeah you know cable news did its usual thing of like lots of uh, reporters which honestly I used to rag on these people and I kind of still am but these people have a job and their job is to like fill airtime while people are waiting to see Donald Trump's Speak. That's their job now. He's a tough act. You can't match him. So they have to fill time by saying stuff like, well, you know, uh, this is in some ways, you know, Haley has actually exceeded some of her benchmarks. So if a whole bunch of things that aren't going to happen, happened between now and Super Tuesday, she might have a very distant chance of coming within plausibly uh, passing Donald Trump, which we know won't happen. But they all have to fill like time saying that kind of stuff. You
1: know, some enterprising entrepreneur could maybe consider starting a cable channel that actually says what's happening. Uh, Because (laughs) I... I realize all these cable channels have their markets. You know, the people who watch CNN want to hear a certain thing. People who watch Fox also want to hear a certain thing. What about the people who just want to know what's actually going on? <laughs> like, who want to hear that the numbers actually mean what they say they mean?
0: Can we get that? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, this is a digression, but I think this is potentially interesting to talk about. I mean, I mean, there's lots of people who claim they're starting media outlets where that's the idea, but then inevitably they end up, you know, like think that's about,
1: all free speech. Shit, well, right. Though. Think about
0: how many like free speech unbound by like uh, the culture war outlets there are that are basically just doing like conservative stuff or whatever. Or then there's other people like. You know Bill Maher, who sort of cornered the market on being like, "Well, I'm a guy who thinks Palestinians are animals, but I also like weed, so I don't fit into like the typical like media binary." But I actually, despite being like a hardened cynic about cable news and the whole business model that it revolves around, uh, maybe this is naive of me, but Will, I agree with you. I kind of think if somebody just started a cable news network that, yeah, maybe like had actual left-wing voices, maybe actual right-wing voices. A network that says, Donald Trump's got this in the bag. What does that mean? (laughs) Yeah, what does that mean? Exactly. (laughs) Like rather than doing the media kayfabe of being like, well, for entertainment value, because that is ultimately what we're trading and that is the product we're selling, in addition to like selling our audiences to advertisers that's the real product we're selling but you know we're ultimately doing sort of infotainment so we have to pretend that there are like stakes here we can't like we want to drag this on as long as possible we want to have heroes villains we want we want our characters to have arcs and yeah it's all bullshit because it's so inauthentic and it's so disconnected from reality so i think i agree with you uh if there was just a network that reported on the news as objectively as possible which, you know, I guess how you do that uh, in today's environment especially is a very open question. And just maintain basic editorial standards, but also try aspire to be ideologically curious and somewhat inclusive. I actually do think in like a crass business sense that there would be an audience for that. Because I've watched a lot of cable news, and look, I know there's people who love it, but I think they're like Tommy Lee Jones at the end of No Country for Old Men. I think their time is passing and the world has kind of moved on. And they're just going through the motions and none of it really makes any sense anymore. Like it is the case that the average or median cable news viewer is like over the age of 50. Many of them are hardened partisans, which like for, you know, one party, another, which for all we hear about, you know, how those identities are like, everyone belongs to one or the other. Uh, they're actually very much like a minority of the U.S. population or even the electorate. Of course, only half the U.S. population that's eligible or less votes. So no, I, I think I agree with you. But so yeah, look, to return to the primary here, I, there's not a lot I have to say about uh, Nikki Haley that hasn't been at least you know indirectly said in what i've remarked already the next uh, caucus is nevada she's not even on the ballot trump wins it by default and then there's like south carolina which uh yeah she used to be the governor but guess what last time i checked trump was up by 30 points i actually you know what was funny is uh, trump had a bunch of his like erstwhile rivals on stage as like trophies so tim scott was just behind him while he was speaking just fucking like with his giant rictus grin, just like thoroughly emasculated, but just like accepting his subordinate status. Trump let him speak and Trump was very clear on this. He let Scott and Ramaswamy speak for like exactly one minute each. He made this clear to the audience as like a threat. Like if you speak for longer than this, I will go, I'm will i going to make fun of you. He made very clear there was a hierarchy. He let Ramaswamy speak first because Ramaswamy has kissed his ass the whole time. That is the whole point of Ramaswamy's campaign. So he got to hang out with Donald Trump and maybe get to be his VP. I don't think he will be. So he let Ramaswamy speak for exactly one minute. Then he let Tim Scott speak for slightly less than that. And he made absolutely clear like, Tim, you are not important here. You're speaking after him. And th- what I was waiting for and what I was hoping like the whole time is like man please make Trump of like blackmailed Ron DeSantis into coming out and just being paraded around with like a dunce cap on to do like an unconditional surrender uh, but no uh, alas we were we were deprived of that uh, there were some other funny things like on the feed CNN had of the Trump lectern you could just see like George Santos's head like bobbing back and forth in the crowd so uh, old Georgie was there I don't know what he's up to these days he'll probably be back in Congress soon enough once the cameo money dries up but uh, what I really want to talk about is, to me, the more interesting uh, figure in all of this. I think in some ways, the most interesting figure of this election season besides Trump himself, and that's Ron DeSantis. I don't actually contend that Ron DeSantis is interesting, but I have found myself weirdly fascinated by what a train wreck his campaign has been. And it's been another instance where, kind of uh, similar to 2016, I've found my own instincts about him, my own initial instincts, which was that he was going to be a train wreck. Like, I'm sure if you listen to episodes of this show. 12 to 14 months ago, you would have heard me say as much. And you know, it feels good to be right, but in some ways I feel like I didn't do that much work. Osito Nuevo uh, from the New Republic, you know, I liked his comment where he said, you know, all you have to do to know what's going on in right wing politics is look at the polls and just expect that like the worst thing is going to happen. Just have no expectations and you'll be right every time. I think that's exactly correct. And so I guess I can't feel too smug about this, but I actually am kind of smug if you go back and look at the bullshit Jonathan Chait was writing about how fucking DeSantis was going to be a threat to Trump. after he uh
1: won so huge in florida you didn't worry just a little bit you didn't worry this could be you know a plausible trump successor that this model of culture war politics that he ran on could could go national
0: if i was wrong about anything it's i mean i don't i i think i think it'd be hard for anyone to have predicted just how badly he was going to crater because look he he suspended his campaign a few days ago but this isn't like a normal suspending your campaign this is the political equivalent of doing like an unconditional surrender where the only term of the treaty besides laying down all your arms is that henceforth you have to call the rival who beat you daddy. I mean, this is like beyond political defeat. This is such a fucking insane humiliation. You know, the New York Times actually had a pretty, pretty good write-up. This was by uh, Michael C. Bender and Nicholas Niamas. Uh, The emasculation of Ron DeSantis by the bully Donald Trump. Look, I've been following this for 14 months now and I had actually missed uh, some of this stuff. In front of enormous rally audiences, Mr. Trump, Trump uh, painted Mr. DeSantis as a submissive sniveler, insisting he had cried and, quote, begged on his knees for an endorsement in the 2018 Florida governor's race. In a series of sexually charged attacks, Mr. Trump suggested without a shred of proof. I like that they specified without a shred of proof. Uh, as if you still need to do that with Donald Trump, Uh, suggested without a shred of proof that Mr. DeSantis wore high heels, that he might be gay, and that he was perhaps a pedophile. He promised that intense national scrutiny would leave Mr. DeSantis, quote, whining for mommy. Now there's another character in the mix that I think I'd kind of missed. This guy, Stephen Chung, who's Donald Trump's chief spokesman. As the article says, he leaned into his background as a public relations operative for the UFC to deliver brutal slams with the force of the sport's suffocating guillotine chokehold. In November, Mr. Chung told the Wall Street Journal that an I.O. Mr. Santis would, quote, face unimaginable pain that he's never felt before in his life. In a news release he cast doubt on Mr. DeSantis' masculinity, saying that he walked, quote, like a 10-year-old girl who had just raided her mom's closet And discovered heels for the first time So these are like the most juvenile Like nasty playground insults And at the end of all this Ron DeSantis, a guy who If you watch any of his ads They're these insane like chest beating You know, Ron DeSantis is like On a divine mission from God To destroy wokeness and restore White American masculinity to its proper place And at the end of all this What does DeSantis do? He drops out, literally has to drop out Before New Hampshire Because he knows he's going to come in third after like he put all his chips on Iowa, distant second place finish. He delivers a fake Winston Churchill quote, like one of those stupid, generic, inspirational Churchill quotes that Churchill never said, does some generic pablum about party unity. Like, oh, I always said I would support the Republican uh, nominee. And you know, the deep state's been huddled Donald Trump, blah, blah, blah. And now he's dropping out, tail between his legs, going back to the Sunshine State, just like limply endorsing a guy who has been using Truth Social to call him a gay pedophile for 12 months. I mean, I don't think anyone could have predicted like the scale of the defeat. But to go back to your question, I mean, no, I don't think I ever really thought that DeSantis was going to be a threat to Donald Trump. A because I I think that you know had that been the case, I would have had to seriously re-examine my whole understanding of what right wing politics are in this point in the 21st century. Like if it's possible to do Trumpism without Trump, uh, which was kind of the premise of the DeSantis campaign, then Trumpism, like it wouldn't be what I understand it to be, if that makes sense. But secondly, if you remember, like the context of the sort of, you know, two months where DeSantis seemed like he was, you know, primed to be, you know, for some people, seemed like he was primed to kind of exploit the moment. It, you know, he had this 18 point win in Florida, which had been a purple state, you know, that he'd remade in his particularly uh, cruel and nasty image, you know, sort of pioneering or at least, you know, perfecting this governing model where whatever the right wing grievance de jour is, no matter how uh, obscure and esoteric, he's going to make a law out of it. But the other context beside the scale of DeSantis' victory was that uh, the midterms, you know, the Republican uh, establishment, um, at least the part of it that is anti-Trump, was trying to pin that on Trump. And maybe to some extent that was true, but it, it seemed to me more the case that uh, what killed the Republican Party in the 2022 midterms was the fact that amid all this polling saying that the economy was kind of the big issue, and also that a lion's share of voters was very angry about the Dobbs decision, and like there's no real popular constituency, I mean, only like the narrowest one possible for these like insane decisions dystopian anti-abortion laws that uh, Republicans are passing at the state level. In the face of all of that, they were like, yeah, let's run a fucking libs of TikTok, you know, midterms campaign. You know, I think it was Felix from Chapa who said, yeah, they sent operatives going door to door in like suburbs trying to canvas around the issue of top surgery and stuff like that. And the thing is that's DeSantis's entire thing. So I thought, well, if you try to turn that into a national brand, I don't see how that's going to work. Even by that point, it was uh, becoming increasingly clear that at least as far as national politics are concerned, red meaty sort of right-wing anti-woke politics are really an electoral loser. They don't work, except in very specific local contexts and places where there's extremely gerrymandered electoral maps. But as a way of talking about uh, Ron DeSantis and kind of what, hit, what this failure ultimately means and how we should understand it, I want to recall to you, Will, and to our listeners, uh, that famous story about... The 1960 presidential debate between JFK and Richard Nixon. You know the one I'm talking about?
1: Well, yes, as uh, Lewis Black said in the film Man of the Year. Uh T- TV scares me because <laughs> because the people who saw that debate on TV thought Kennedy won, but on radio, they thought Nixon won.
0: That's right. So that's what everybody says. In fact, I maybe have been guilty of repeating this anecdote in the past as if it's true. Uh, I actually looked into it this week. It seems to be basically apocryphal. It's kind of like the War of the Worlds thing where like no uh, American cities were not taken over by, by panic. The newspapers at the time actually kind of misreported what happened. The reason they have such potency is because even if they're not strictly true, they are useful shorthands, useful ways of conveying things that people feel. In the case of the Orson Welles uh, War of the Worlds broadcast, there was a very good essay by a slate writer maybe 10 years ago where their thesis was essentially that the reason this kind of sticks in the popular imagination, even though it isn't true, is that all of us are kind of rightly afraid of the power mass media has, basically. And, of course, you know, those were the early days of radio as a mass medium. In the case of the JFK-Nixon thing, I think really the story is a useful shorthand for, you know, a stock piece of political cynicism that a lot of people feel, which is that, you know, yeah, politics are just an empty popularity contest, especially in an age of mass media. People listening to Nixon thought that he sounded substantive, but people seeing Kennedy, this flashy new, you know, patrician. Fucking hot, too. Just yeah. a goddamn beautiful face <laughs> and a rockin' bod <laughs> yeah what if they made the whole face out of the Habsburg? <laughs> but yeah so like this is a thing that runs through you know like there's a type of 80s movie right where the high school jock you know who's charismatic and handsome beats the nerd and becomes class president even though the nerd is the one who has like a real vision for student council or whatever and the thing is right there's like obviously i'm not going to dispute this story categorically. Uh, if you think about a lot of the people who've been most successful in American politics, particularly since 1960, people like Reagan, Clinton, Barack Obama, like all these guys in different ways were unbelievably slick operators. They're the kinds of people who managed that very strange balance of being down to earth in some kind of way or seeming down to earth, but then also seeming like they're these Jupitarian figures who, you know, embody the, the moment or something like that. They're all People who it's fair to say, in at least some narrow sense, could fairly be called charismatic. And I think people still kind of assume politics operates along those lines and maybe to some extent they do, but if you look at the past five, six, seven, eight years of uh, American politics, I actually think there is a parallel phenomenon that can be observed of which Ron DeSantis is perhaps the most advanced stage of, at least at this point. If you think about the kinds of politicians that both parties have elevated increasingly since let's say 2015, 2016, both parties are increasingly elevating these people who inspire tremendous passion and conviction and fanaticism among increasingly narrow segments of people who are incredibly blue-pilled or incredibly red-pilled. You know, we think about the fan cult around uh, Hillary Clinton where like when she ultimately was narrowly defeated by Donald Trump, I mean, that really was earth-shattering to the people who most believed in her. Like the the idea that anybody wouldn't love and worship Hillary Clinton just didn't make any sense. You think about Beto O'Rourke, you know, a guy whose campaign peaked with a Vanity Fair cover that uh, was published before he actually announced his candidacy or, or just uh, right at the beginning of that. Think of Pete Buttigieg, a guy who had a, just a stellar run of media, and then like as soon as actual voters got involved, you know he barely made it beyond Iowa. Think of Stacey Abrams. I mean, God, if you read some of the profiles that were written about her, um, as uh, you know the commentator Ed Germantum wrote on his Substack in his uh, "Art of Losing" piece on Abrams, you know you read some of the stuff that's been written about her, and you could be forgiven for not realizing that she has never won a statewide race. And then on the right, you know, you have all kinds of figures that are, you know, analogous to this. And I'm aware that I'm, you know, partaking in some generalization here because I do do think some generalization is necessary because I do think the liberal and conservative versions of this, though similar, are also slightly different. We think about, like, the cavalcade of losers that uh, the GOP establishment threw up against Trump in 2016. Probably the, the, the most emblematic of them being Ted Cruz, right? Ted Cruz, just a viscerally repellent guy, awful voice, awful face a guy whose main appeal is like he has a fan cult among uh, guys that wore bow ties to their college frosh and exclusively listened to techno remixes of Wagner. And this was going to be their true blue conservative alternative to Donald Trump. And yeah, wouldn't you know it, he flopped spectacularly. So with increasing frequency, it strikes me that both parties have actually defied the conventional wisdom about politics where it's like, oh, uh, politics have become pure spectacle. It's a popularity contest. Parties just elevate these these people that, uh, you know, voters want to have a beer with. Well, I would enter into discussion one Mr. Ron DeSantis, a guy who, as you've said, Will, was uh, frequently discussed as this is the new hotness on the right. This guy's going to replace Donald Trump as the tribune of the American right. And it turns out not only was he not that, uh, but it turns out the guy they picked was actually the weirdest and most unpleasant and repugnant man in America. (laughs) Electorally, a huge failure, was not able to offer even like token resistance to Donald Trump, could not even make it to New Hampshire, was planning to campaign. Campaign in New Hampshire said he would like as recently as I don't know five days ago and then two days later he's just like I can't uh, I have to say uncle just tapping out pathetic abjectly humiliated as I've said but also a guy who was at the peak of his popularity before he really had a national profile. Then along come the suits, along comes the Rupert Murdoch Death Star. They're like, okay, this is the guy. And all the little Soviets of what calls itself the conservative movement go into action. The Daily Wire guys are like, oh, this is the guy who's going to make the war on woke into a national cause. We can't lose. And what happens? Well, uh, the never back down super PAC that is just, just like unlimited money. I'm sensing some irony in the name. (laughs) Yeah. Would you say there's Uh, irony in the name? Once you know it, he, it turns out he fucking did back down. Should have called it always back down. Am I right? I do think it was a gamble to call it never back down, and maybe they shouldn't have done that. But I guess they couldn't call it Ron DeSantis is a fucking loser either. So, <laughs> anyway, the fucking the usual like cadre of faceless billionaires—they turn on the fucking taps. The country is blanketed with ads where it's like, hey, have you heard? Have you heard the good news? The governor of Florida—he's coming to save the day. Wouldn't you know it? The more people see of Ron DeSantis, the more his poll numbers fall. You would think, like most people, right? Think about most people you know. Will even most public figures. Like, just think about virtually any person and then think about what what would happen if $150 million or a quarter of a billion dollars were spent on ads that blanket every medium and are like, this person's great. You would think most people, right? They would benefit, like even the most repugnant people, the most repellent people would get like 0.1% approval, (laughs) like, you know, net from that, like plus one. Not Ron DeSantis. If you look at his poll numbers, the more money that was spent on introducing him to the public, (laughs) the worse his poll numbers got, the more hands he shook the more voters whose names he couldn't remember the more people who he said what's your name and then replied okay when they said their name with like okay with an exclamation mark the more people saw his weird like cyborg facial expressions the less they liked him i don't know i kind of like him. <laughs> i don't know what your problem is like the more he like got on stage and like fuck like like I, I did watch I guess all or most of the Republican debates and like again I just you think like these people spend so much money on consultants ostensibly like again like further to my overall point here ostensibly the problem with politics these days is that technology is has enveloped the whole thing it's taken over the whole thing like polls supposedly guide everything and that's what debases politics Ron DeSantis though despite all his zillions he spent on consultants any consultant who isn't like a pimply faced Ben Shapiro acolyte should have been able to look at the polls and been like, okay, people care about the economy, so you should run on that. Pierre Polievre in Canada actually seems to understand that. He was always at risk of being a Ron DeSantis figure, and it doesn't look like that's uh, what's happening with him. But Ron DeSantis, uh, faced with all of this evidence of like, this is what people care about, this is what you should talk about, he's going out on stage and he's like, Folks, uh, I'm going to crack down on the Confucius Institutes that are taking over college campuses. I'm going to end Joe Biden's war on cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. I'm going to fight the scourge of ESG and DEI. Uh, Pop quiz, Will. Uh, Do you know what either of those things are? I I did at the time. Thanks to Ron DeSantis. Well, exactly. But they're basically, they're the, they're the kinds of things you would only know about if you watch the Daily Wire, if you watch Fox News, and like even if you look up ESG, like if you just looked up ESG right now, you'll get a very clinical like corporate HR definition. It will take a further step, at least one further step, to even figure out like what right wing people are mad about. Like these grievances are so esoteric; they're the kinds of things that you only have the requisite knowledge to know if you're the kind of person who likes Viktor Orban on Facebook and goes. to to CPAC. It's fucking ridiculous. So what is the meaning of Ron DeSantis? Well, it's the same as the Kennedy meaning. It's like if you got a guy with a fucking perfect face and a hot bod and put him in front of Mike, <laughs> the world will love him. <laughs> He's the living refutation of the JFK versus Nixon, like the yeah. apocryphal thesis that came out of that. For reasons that are very interesting to think about and which I don't think uh, people have fully grappled with yet, both of America's leading political parties, and I think this is true of uh, you know the political cultures in some other countries as well, both of them are increasingly elevating these politicians who enjoy sometimes it's days, sometimes it's weeks, sometimes it's months in the sun before spectacularly flaming out. People who are so ridiculously unpopular and just don't scan for people at all. And I think that's a pretty interesting development. Ron DeSantis is a particularly advanced version of whatever we're calling this disease. He's also a, you know, a very particularly conservative version. As I said, I think that, you know, this happens on the liberal side as well. Perhaps the the sources of it are a little bit different if even if the phenomenon is fundamentally the same. But if I can offer any explanation as to all of this, right, you would think political parties would be chasing the polls. They would they would have, you know, given how advanced polling techniques are and stuff, they would have the uh, equipment at their disposal, the means at their disposal to figure out what and who is going to be popular and then to just run with that. And maybe there might be problems associated with that, but you'd have fewer Ron DeSantis's and you'd have fewer chaotic uh, Beto O'Rourke gubernatorial campaigns or whatever, but they're not doing that. So why? And the only explanation for this that I can offer is that in the past several decades, I mean, particularly the last two, but let's say beginning, you know, uh, roughly 40 years ago, Political parties have become increasingly removed from any popular constituency to speak of. They become increasingly professionalized, they become increasingly the properties of ever more narrow classes of operatives, who in many cases are raised on a particular uh, kind of ideological diet, especially now of like an increasingly narrow media diet, such that they mistake, and this is particularly true on the right, such that they mistake the idioms that they embrace and the the things that make them mad, the things that make them happy, mistake those for some kind of, you know, general interest. They think that everybody feels the same way as they do. And because actual democratic participation has collapsed, you know, the only participation that remains is people participating in the parties, much like, you know, Marvel fans participate as, like, they they, they conscript themselves to become, you know, the Praetorian Guard of the Marvel Universe, or, like, you get the Release the Snyder Cut fighting Sardukar or whatever. People now do that for political parties. So then that creates another incentive for political parties to create these micro fandoms around these figures who may actually not be appealing to anybody at all that end up spouting rhetoric and using turns of phrase that, yeah, maybe it repels people, maybe it puts people off, but more often than not, just doesn't scan for people at all. People are like, ESG? I don't even know what that is. I don't care about Disney. I don't care about the Buzz Lightyear movie. I'm not actually angry about Barbie. I'm just mad that food costs 30% more than it did two years ago. Anyway, as a final salute to Meatball Ron, uh, I can't think of any better way to send him out than with that piano thing from Layla. Let's go out on that.
1: people Alright, great. So, let's see. <laughs> so just keep crashing, but... yeah, I think we've got <laughs> a, just a massive number of people online so
0: it's um, servers are straining somewhat. Um, Alright, we're just uh, reallocating more uh, server sort of capability uh, to be able to handle the load here. It's uh, really going, going crazy. So, um, yeah,
1: um, I'm super excited to um, have uh, Governor DeSantis uh, make this uh... Uh, can, Are you there? Can you hear us? I think you're I'm
0: right, here! I know, I think,
1: I think you broke the internet there We had over half a million people in one Twitter space And it was growing by like 50,000 a minute So uh, congrats on uh, I'm breaking the internet there <laughs> Have you ever eaten a chocolate pudding with three fingers? I don't remember ever doing that. I'm telling you, maybe when I was a kid, but it's interesting. You know, there's a lot of people when you're when they go at you, sometimes they have like really good ammunition, like you're a crook, you did this, you did that. For me, they're talking about pudding? Like, is that really the best you got? Okay, bring it on. But now you're not having puddings? No, no, no pudding. Don't, no way, it's sugar, man. Oh, what is that? An icy? Yeah, that's probably a lot of sugar, huh? Good to see you. <laughs> The challenge for DeSantis, let me just play a little clip of him, that even for people who like him, that I know, they are Republicans in Florida, who think he's good at, at, you know, they loved him on COVID, for instance, yep. none of them will say to me, they think that he has the charisma for a national stage. They just, they, they right. want to be honest, and they won't say it. Let me just show you a little bit of DeSantis um, and how he behaves.
0: You do not have to
1: wear those masks. I mean, please, <laughs> <laughs> honestly, it's not doing anything, and we got to stop with this COVID theater. So if you want to wear it, yeah. it's fine, but this is, a, this is ridiculous. Yeah, I, you know, honestly, this has been, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, this has been handled ad nauseum. I you, I know you can talk about the, these officials. Ask them about it, that's fine, go ahead, ma'am. Okay, 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 S-
0: stop. America does seem to like Bullies to some degree. Um, you don't have to be as charming. I mean, maybe it gets you get credibility
1: as like a kind of as an anti-establishment kind of doesn't play well with others kind of guy. But I, I, look, I just don't think that he will wear as well as some people think. Really terrific person. I've gotten to know his wife, Casey, for having run a great campaign for president. He ran a, a really good campaign. I will tell you, it's not easy. They think it's easy doing this stuff, right? It's not easy. But as you know, he left the campaign trail today at 3 p.m. And in so doing, he
0: was very gracious and he endorsed him. So, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And I also
1: look forward to working with Rob and everybody else,